0: And to my surprise, uh, I started in verse 1 of Jude, and I was able to complete it in four weeks. Uh, Perhaps I'm cutting God's Word short by doing that, uh, but I wanted to finish it in four parts. And so today is going to be part 4, Jude 17 through 25. In review of this grand epistle, in verses 1 through 4 was the opening address and the command to contend for the faith. In verses 5 through 7, we saw demonology and a reminder of God's punishment of the sexually immoral. In verses 8 through 16 was a denunciation of false teachers, and we marked some as well. We also saw that Michael the archangel contended with the devil and the relevance of Enoch's prophecy and the woe judgments And that Christ is going to come back for his church. He's coming back also to judge the living and the dead. And today, in part four of this epistle, will be verses 17 through 23, is the Christian remedy. And verses 24 through 25 is a doxology with a closing commendation and acknowledgement of praise. Let us begin with verse 17, after I briefly pray. Lord, thank you for allowing me to stand here by your grace, an unworthy man, that I'm only here because of your Holy Spirit's gift of teaching that if anything I say is right and good, it is purely from you, and anything that might be wrong, Lord, is me because I'm just a, a sinner saved by your grace. So I ask that you would speak to us through your living word as we do an exposition of the scriptures, That you would continue to challenge us, Lord, to obey this epistle from the beginning of verse 3 of contending for the faith, and then in this closing doxology today that you would encourage us to remain steadfast in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Beginning with verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, And have mercy on those who doubt, saving others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Uh, There's no doubt that this epistle is a hard pill to swallow for some. Hopefully nobody in this church, but it's a hard pillow to swallow for some. But a preacher should never apologize for some of the hard preaching that has been done the last three weeks. As a matter of of fact, Charles Spurgeon said this after preaching through this passage that I just read. Spurgeon said, I may have said some rough things this morning, but I am not given much to cutting and trimming, and I do not suppose I shall begin to learn that art now. If the thing is untrue, it is with you to reject it. If it be true... At your own peril, reject what God stamps with divine authority. In Jude 17, it says in verse 17, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard the saying, you've been warned. Jude here is reminding us that the apostles forewarned generations of the false teachers and of the apostasy coming. And that we should be prepared for that and not taken by surprise. Oftentimes I'm disappointed when we hear about these things. But, but I have to be honest with you, I also rejoice. Because it shows that God's word is true. That he warned us these things would occur. Just last week we learned of a well-known contemporary con, uh, Christian music uh, icon, if there was such a thing as Christian music, has affirmed homosexuality. And then we also learned that a well-known country music icon, who now decided to start singing Christian music instead of just country music, has now not only affirmed homosexuality, but is an outspoken advocate of it. And the scripture warns that professing believers will do these things. Paul warned in Acts 20:31, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Until Christ's second coming, there will be a presence of false teachers, apostates, mockers, and scoffers. In verse 18 he said, They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. Today we live in an era where the Bible calls, what the Bible calls as the end times of the latter days or the last days, open-air evangelists in the streets. God bless them for going out. They experience scoffers more frequently than pastors do, uh, even to the point of violence. And I would encourage anybody to go out with a street preacher and experience this at worldly venues. Uh, Jude says that they are more than just a scoffer, uh, that they do so to justify Their own passions and their own fleshly sins. And Peter said in 2 Peter 3 1 through 3 This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. One scholar said this of these scoffers, They mock especially the moral law of God and the certainty of divine punishment on the disobedient. Paul told Timothy to anticipate people's increasing self-centeredness and self-indulgence, hypocrisy, and false teachings as the last days progressed. It's disappointing, but it's also encouraging. Amen? Now, some of these mockers or scoffers will never come to Christ. That's because God has not decreed them to come to Christ. Uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 1 that God gave some up to their lusts, desires, and sins. On the other hand, some scoffers will later be saved. That is God's elect. We do not whom the elect of God is, but all we can do is go Stand and speak, or share the gospel, and sow his seeds, and just trust in God for the results. Jude said in verse 19, It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Verse 9:18 says these apostates and false teachers can cause division even in the church. They are not willing to submit to a local church authority. They are not willing to submit to the elders of their church but rather they bring in their own false teachings or compromises contrary to the doctrine of that church. That is why it is important to be a confessional church, that our confession is our statement of faith. And we should always revisit that confession. You should have it on your bed like a Reader's Digest and continually go through the confession. Romans sixteen, seventeen through 18 says... I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. It's attractive to see somebody smile and give you smooth talk. And I can see how people can be drawn into that. Verse 19b says that they are worldly people. Some of your translations will say they are natural or sensual. Uh, This natural man is not truly born again. Uh, They profess Jesus with their lips, but they are not born again of Christ's incorruptible seed. Uh, Their heart has not been regenerate. They claim to be spiritual. They'll even use the words today, spiritual, but it is not the Holy Spirit. It says in James 3.15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Yes, sensuality is, in fact, demonic. Verse 19, c said that they are devoid the Spirit. This means they are not born again. As Jesus said in John 3, You assuredly, surely, I say to you, you must be born again of the water and the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Paul warned in Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Through a hermeneutical study of the scriptures, the Bible is very clear that there are some professing believers that will, in fact, perish and go to hell. They may profess with their lips, but they do not possess a regeneration of the heart. And America is full of false converts, including the so-called Bible Belt, including this Nashville country music star in the Bible Belt who is leading so many people astray. Now in verses 20 through 23, Jude transitions from the negative to the positive, and both are necessary for a healthy balance, for a healthy theology or or the whole counsel of the word of God. And Jude says in verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Though Christians must correct, rebuke, and expose sin, according to Ephesians 5.11, but we're also called to build up the church, to build up each other. And I am thankful that this is a church that's continually Discipling each other and fellowshipping throughout the week. And the Bible declares in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that we are saved by grace through the faith in Lord through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and not of ourselves, lest any man would boast. Again, faith is an element or an evidence of our salvation, as is holiness. Because God said, without holiness you can even not see God. And we get that holiness and that righteousness from Christ that he imputes over to us. It's the work he accomplished on that cross that he did for his blood-bought church. Here Jude says to build each other up in holiness and faith, Holy Spirit willing. He also tells us to pray in the Holy Spirit, which means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit while we're praying and not our flesh. One scholar said this, True believers have a sure foundation, 1 Corinthians 3.11, and cornerstone in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2.20. The truths of the Christian faith have been provided in the teaching of the apostles and prophets so that Christians can build themselves up by the word of God, Acts 20.32, praying in the Holy Spirit, close quote. Building each other up in the word of God. As Pastor Mike was sharing earlier, the importance brother Robin leading this worship by by reading the scriptures. We're commanded by God to read the scriptures, even publicly. Jude continues in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Through God's grace, we can keep ourselves in the love of God. The born-again saint can rest assured... As they wait for their eternal life, which has been purchased for them and conferred upon them, through the mercy extended to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. We must diligently, obediently, and faithfully live out our salvation as God works out his will in our lives. Again, we're saved by grace, but as Paul said in Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In the next two verses, Jude escalates how to handle two different types of people or two different people groups. Some we can be kind, and some we have to be more assertive or perhaps even more aggressive with. Jude says in verses 22 through 23: And have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out to the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. In verse 22, These are those that may be true believers, true Christians, but Satan may be discouraging or deceiving them, causing them to doubt their faith. With these people, we must be gentle, kind, patient, and merciful to. As Matthew Henry said, we must watch over one another. Church, we must watch over one another. Faithfully, yet prudently, reprove each other and set a good example to all about us. This must be done with compassion, making a difference between the weak and the willful. Some we must treat with tenderness. Others save with fear, urging the terrors of the Lord. End of quote. Now in verse 23 it says, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. These are those that need a more aggressive reproach, maybe a kick in the derriere, as my good daddy used to do to me often. Uh, We need to pull them out of the fire. It says to show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by flesh. What does this mean? These can be believers or they can be false converts. Either way, we don't know, but they're infected and affected and, and by wrong teachings, by false teachings led astray by people compromising the word of God, compromising sound doctrine. And the snatching them out of the fire is what biblical evangelists do out in the streets when they preach at worldly venues. I recently saw a video on the internet, it was actually, I'm sorry for laughing, but a he wasn't the Christian, but this man took a pan, and it looked like a frying pan, and he hit three Antifa members on the head at a, at a protest, and you can hear the frying pan, gong, gong, gong. And in the background were Christians holding up scriptural signage. These Christians, these evangelists at this protest were in the midst of battle, and Antifa was pulling down their sign, their scripture signs. It was quite, a, quite an interesting thing to see. And church, that's where, that's where we belong. We belong in the streets. We belong. Not everybody is called to be involved in actual struggles like that, but we are called to be in the streets, snatching them out of the fire, preaching the glorious gospel, sharing gospel tracts, however God shows you, one-on-ones. You know, we have more room for people in the sanctuary. You look around, we have people in the back, people in the middle, the front, but we have lots of empty space here. How could we help? each other with that. It says, and Jesus said in Luke 14, of course, it's got to be God's will and God's decree to actually add to the church. But Jesus said in Luke 14, and the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. In verse 23b, it says, To others show mercy with fear. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It says in Proverbs 1, 7, that the beginning of knowledge is fear of the Lord. And Jude said in verse 23c, Now we're to hate the garments stained by the flesh. These garments are stained by Sin. You see, the world can care less about wearing infected, contagious garments. They want to bring leaven into the church. Uh, Jude says that we are to hate sins that can stain or contaminate our own garments, that we should hate what God hates, but love what God loves. But sadly, we see many professing Christians today allowing their their own garments to be stained by sin. We all sin. We all sin. But we ought not to intentionally just allow it to stain our garments and remain there without repentance, without change. Christ's bride must be kept beautiful and not stained like the world. If we truly loved his church, we would hate anything that contaminates her wedding gown. The only appropriate time that our garments or our wedding gown should get stained is because we're in the trenches toiling the soil and sowing gospel seeds, not because we're participating with the world, but that we're engaging the world, not being of the world. There was a time that sometimes I would evangelize. I'd come home smelling like beer. (laughs) It wasn't because I was hanging out at the bars. It was because beer was being thrown upon me while sharing the gospel. We're to be in this world, but not of this world. John commanded us in 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or the things of the world. I'm not saying that you can't have beer. I'm not saying that's a sin. But I'm talking about worldly venues, worldly events, where heathens are throwing beer at us. But Jesus, or John commanded in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It says in James chapter 4, me and one of the brothers just had breakfast a few days ago, and we're talking about this, about being against the world system, not being part of the world, not looking like the world. It's James 4, 4-5, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Paul commanded us in 1 Corinthians 6, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now this is the verse that's frequently taken out of context, usually by peaceniks or pacifists. And it is Romans twelve eighteen, which says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all. Doesn't it sound good? Live peaceable with all. But my friends, a true biblical church cannot live peaceable with the world. It's not going to happen. Just dropping, uh, a matter of fact, look at this, back up, uh, excuse me, nine verses, it says in verse 9 of Romans 12, listen to this, because the whole context of God's word is important, it says, let your love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. So, if we're going to live peaceable, the Bible also tells us that we ought to abhor what is evil. We should abhor what God abhors. We should love what God loves. We need a balanced theology and a balanced biblical diet in our lives daily. Later on, uh, in your own time, a suggested reading that I would ask the church to continually re examine time to time is it tells us how to biblically walk in love in light and in wisdom, and that's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. That's an excellent passage to continually remind ourselves and, and, and test ourselves and say, are we actually practicing this commandment, Ephesians 5, 1 through 21? As Jesus said in John thirteen, thirty-four through 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I see that in this church, a love for one another. Next in verses 24 through 25 is the doxology with a closing commendation and an acknowledgement of praise. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, by glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time and now, forever. Amen. Jude's conclusion here is a doxology that expresses his confidence in God to preserve his church all the way to the end. It also acknowledges God's eternal greatness in his glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Jude places an emphasis on salvation here. This is also a great passage to defend our T, or excuse me, our P in in, in Tula, the perseverance of saints, that God will preserve us, that we cannot lose our salvation. This is also a great passage to share with Christians that are near death, or that perhaps might be in hospice, to encourage them that their salvation is secure in Christ. And what an encouragement this can be for his saints to meditate on, that for the saint their salvation is secure, and that glory is just around the corner. Breaking this down, there's a lot in this doxology. Breaking this down, Jude said in verse 24a, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Jude says God is able. Our God is able. This speaks of God's omnipotence, that he is all-powerful. This word keep here is the Greek word phulaso. It is a verb which means to isolate, to keep watch over. Uh, to be on guard, literally or figuratively, to preserve. Notice the word obey here. Church, what are we to obey? Well, many things, but here's a summary of what we are to obey. It is right here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, which says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. "...for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God," now listen to this, "...and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ." we are to obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ amongst every, every commandment that God has given us in the scriptures. Jesus said in John 14, Whosoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What does this lo- what the Lord mean here with the word keep here? It says he keeps us from stumbling. Some of your translations will say he keeps us from falling. And this word comes from the Greek word optos, optostos. And it is an adjective. And it is yet another hapax legomenon. Uh, the epistle of Jude is full of them. It means to not stumble, to keep from falling into sin and or to stand firm. The Lord will keep us all the way from the doctrine of justification when we receive salvation, all the way throughout our sanctification as we grow in his holiness, Lord willing, up into the doctrine of glorification when we are with him in glory. Paul said in Romans 8, 29 through 30, for those whom he foreknew, much doctrine again, he foreknew the doctrine of foreknowledge, he foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now in verse 24b, as in Bible, Jude says, And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. I guess I could have said be isn't blameless. This word blameless means to be without blemish or faultless. Are we always going to be faultless? Is there fault against us? Absolutely. We've sinned against a holy God. But Christ made that better for his church. The only way a born-again Christian, a a Christian, which is only one kind of Christian, a born-again Christian can become faultless or, or blameless is through what is known as the doctrine of imputation of Christ. There's so much more that happened on that cross through that death, burial, and resurrection. There's so much, and I just want to go through some of the powerful doctrines that Christ accomplished on that cross for his church. This doctrine applies only to Christians, only to Christ's bride, God's elect. That at that bloody cross, the elect's sins are imputed over to Jesus and, Jesus' righteousness is now imputed unto our account to the new Christian. His righteousness is ours. That's the only reason why we can stand before God, because of Christ. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus as Jesus bore the wrath that we all deserve. To those that become born again, Christ's righteousness is imputed over to the believer into our account. It is then that Jesus has... Uh, it is then that justice has been satisfied, that Jesus fully satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of his church. Henceforth, the born-again Christian is then justified, which means Jesus declares us righteous before the Father, his church righteous before the Father, which is a legal term with forensic value. It's like a theological court of law of what Christ did on our account, on our behalf. Standing there is our defense and our advocate. And when I say our, I'm talking about God's elect. It is then that Christ fully satisfied the wrath of God or appeased the wrath of God. The other doctrines here are seeing, which is satisfying the wrath of God, is propitiation and expiation. Again, this is exclusively for God's elect only. Propitiation is a vertical element of atonement where Christ placates God's wrath and punishment, which was due to his church. But expiation manifests itself horizontally, where he removes the guilt of our sin. In short, propitiation removes the punishment that we deserve for our sin, and expiation removes the guilt of our sin. Yes, we must also appreciate the doctrine of substitutionary atonement also known as the great exchange, that the great exchange happened on that cross where Jesus stepped in as the substitute, where he stepped in, he stepped in the gap between the Father's wrath that we deserve and us lost sinners. On behalf of his church, he bore the wrath that we all deserve. As stated, though we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, But that does not mean that we are free of any responsibilities on our end. That's why I always tell, and I hope you always tell people after presenting the gospel to them, what am I supposed to do? Repent and believe. Repent and believe for starts. The Bible says in Acts 17, here is their responsibility and our responsibility. Acts 17, 30 through 31, and this is a commandment. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Metanoia, metanoia, change your mind of whom you are. I'm a sinner and I need salvation. Change your mind of whom God is. He is holy, righteous, and justice. And he has the authority to throw me into hell. Turn from my sins. Believe in the gospel. What does it mean to believe? Bestuo, to be entrusted to Christ. To put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. I know I've been wrongfully called by people on the internet as a lordship salvationist by calling people to repent. But remember, repentance is not the cause of our salvation. It is not a works salvation. Repentance is because of salvation. Repentance is a gift from the Lord that he gives us along with the gift of faith upon salvation. And so if we repent and believe, it's only because God allowed us to repent and believe. Beyond justification, in the doctrine of sanctification, while we're growing after being saved, we do take a part in that repentance by changing our mind, by turning from sin, by stopping particular sins in our life because they keep coming back. What a mess would we be if we never, ever repented from our sins? Jude said, a Christian will be presented to the Lord blameless here before the presence of his glory with great joy. Isn't that good news for Christians? We will be presented before God blameless before his glory and his presence because of his precious son, Jesus, because of his precious blood that he shed for his church. John 5.55 says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? and do not seek the glory that comes from the only god. You know, we were saved for a primary purpose. You know what that was? Our primary purpose of being saved was to give glory to God. Even in the glass of water that we drink, that we give thanks and glory to God for. Romans 11:36 says for And for him, from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Moving on to the last verse, verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now forever. Amen. Regarding verse 25a, Some of your translations say, to the only wise God. God is not only supremely and sovereignly wise, he is the only one true God. There are many little gods and false gods, but there's only one true living God, the God of the scriptures, the God that saves, the God that came to us in the form of a man to save his church. Jude ends this epistle by turning everything over to God. God is the Christian's strength and refuge. In verse 24b, the word Savior here is the Greek word soter. It's also similar to the word soteriology, was the doctrine of salvation, soter, which means that Christ is a Savior, a deliverer, and a preserver. He didn't just save us, He's going to preserve us all the way to the end. That the Lord Jesus does not just save, He delivers, He protects, and He preserves all the way onto glory. In verse 25E, Jude refers to God as majesty. O majesty. The Lord's magnificence signifies the height and the excellence of God's glory. One of our pillars of our reformation, soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. For he alone is worthy of our praise. Verse 25, F is in Frank, he speaks of the Lord's dominion. Uh, this is the Greek word kratos, which means God's dominion, strength, power, and mighty deed. There's a lot in this verse, isn't there? There's a lot of, lot of, lot of doctrine and a lot of great things in this doxology. And think of it, every Lord's Day we, we, we sing a doxology that praises God. Verses 25, G is in God, speaks of God's authority. That was divine providence. I I didn't type that in there on purpose, but G for God speaks of God's authority. This authority comes from the Greek word excusia, which means God's power, God's authority, especially God's moral authority and influence. We don't have morality in ourselves, I remember back in late eighties when I was a false convert and the early nineties when I was actually saved and what was it, Pat Robinson and the moral majority? I used to think that we acquired some type of morality and that we can be moral. (laughs) I was wrong. It's all about God. It all comes from Him. Wretched worm I am. I have no goodness in myself, but the goodness of God. I have no righteousness in myself, but the righteousness of Christ. We only act moral is because of His grace, that he's empowered us. He's granted us repentance, the church. He's given us new desires and affections in our heart. He's changed a heart of stone into a heart of flesh and we now again love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. I don't know about you guys, but do you hate your sin? I hate mine. Not only is the Lord, not only is the Lord all of this and all of that to say the least. Jude said in verse 25h, he was before all time and now and forever. It says in Hebrews 13:8 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. He's forever, folks. Jesus existed before he was born, the preeminence of Christ, that he was here because you cannot be a God in the flesh, an incarnate God, and have a new start. He wasn't born on Christmas Day. He always existed because he is truly God and truly man. Jesus even existed as the preeminence of Christ was here before he was even born. It's just that God came to us in the form of man to send us a Savior later, but he always existed Jesus said in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen? is that exciting? This is the God we serve. And who's the head of this church? The God with skin on, Christ Jesus. Jesus said in Revelation twenty two, thirteen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You know why he said that that way? Because some people only stand Greek and some people only stand understand English. He said it both ways, so we'll look at it. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Well, church, there it is. The Epistle of Jude in four weeks. Let us continue pray that God gives us courage. The first couple, first couple sermons were very difficult. I think it would be more harder to hear God's word than it would be to preach, but it was difficult to preach. But to contend for the faith, it's a commandment. And as we see pseudo-churches, unbiblical churches, we're not perfect, we're not the church, we're not all of this and that, Christ is all this and that, We fall miserably short too, but we do strive for holiness. But when we see the apostatization of the churches in America and people falling away from the faith, Christians, we have a duty. We have a duty to snatch them out of the fire and if necessary, mark them and name them as we did in a couple sermons. Father, help us grow in your grace and knowledge. Thank you for your word, Lord, only through the courage that you've given us and the confidence that we have in Christ and that we can trust your word because you have enabled, to, enabled us to do that. As a sinner, I was once dead in my trespasses and sins, metaphorically, spiritually, nothing but a corpse in a graveyard. But you have woken your church. You have given us life. You have raised us up from our deadness. Our spiritual deadness and thanks God after we die in the flesh, one day you will raise us up again in glory and we will spend an eternity with you. Lord, we ask that you would bless this church, help us obey you and keep your commandments in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.